Hello. I'm coming to you from designated loner zone 281B. And it's been quite a couple weeks. I mean, I didn't do an episode last week because I hurt myself and it sort of threw everything into a tailspin. Um, you know, they say that once you've sprained your ankle once, you're prone to re-injury. And I have found that to be the case, especially this past couple weeks, because I was stepping out of the cabin, um, which is, you know, just your classic log cabin, truly idyllic looking from the outside. Um, it has little three little steps down off the porch onto the ground and I was coming off those steps and, you know, um, walking as a upright human does. And I just lost my footing. Um, this is the most boring injury story of all time. I lost my footing and I fell down and I twisted my foot all this way and that. And, uh, you know, I've done it before. I've done it before. Uh, I knew immediately what was going on. The first time I uh, sprained my ankle was probably in high school or something. I barely remember it. Middle school, maybe. Um, and it wasn't that bad. It was like a twisted ankle, maybe a day or two off my feet. When I was, hmm, let's see, it was in America One. It was, um, you know, probably 2017 or something like that. I was coming out of my sister's house in Flagstaff, Arizona, and I slipped on some ice. And once you've slipped on ice, now I slipped on ice in college and I broke my tailbone, which was awful. It was truly terrible pain. Um, I'll never forget it. So ice has always been my enemy, especially ice you can't see really. Black ice, as they call it. Ice has always been my enemy. And, um, but, you know, enough years go by and you start to forget about your enemy. You're not as careful. You're not as watchful. You're not as prepared to battle the enemy. So I was coming out of my sister's house. It was the day after Christmas, and she had a lot of ice around. It wasn't on her sidewalk. It was on the neighbor's sidewalk. I probably should have sued them, but I didn't. Um, I'm not a litigious person, generally speaking. Um, and I just, I mean, it was truly the worst pain I've ever felt. It was catastrophic levels of sprain. I heard a crack I thought I'd broken my leg and really it was just like ligaments snapping. Like it was like a rubber band, like, you know, oh, just the worst pain. I fainted like three times trying to get to the car. Um, they had to keep picking me up. I was in so much pain. And that was like a three month, pretty intense recovery. It was eight weeks off my feet on crutches. Nope wasn't able to put pressure on my foot. Like that's how bad it was. Um, <clears throat> and a year later, you know, really still really feeling better, really did, you know, did the work of the th physical therapy, got strong. My whole body had to rework my right leg because I didn't put any weight on my right leg for like, you know, almost three months. I didn't really put a lot of weight on my right leg. You could physically see the difference between my two legs. My left leg was bigger than my right leg. Like had, my right leg had totally like atrophied. Um, so I had to do all this work to even out my body again. 
you know, did all that CrossFit, as we have discussed. Bing, 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 bing. Um, but, uh, you know, once you've hurt your ankle that bad once, it'll never be the same. And once in a while it would hurt and, you know, I'd have to really kind of stretch it and, you know, take care of it. Well, a few months after that point, so in 2018, in the spring of 2018, I, uh, I went on this really long tour. And you, you, sometimes I wonder if your body does things to try and teach you a lesson. Um, so I was on tour for a month. I did two weeks in London. I was actually in London for almost three weeks. But I did two weeks of shows in London at the Soho Theater, which was a dream come true. I'd never been to London. I went there. Uh, I totally nerded out and went to all the like literary spots. I went to the Globe. I went to the British Library. British Library. Oh, my God talk about a library okay first of all they have all this old shit you can go look at you can look at like original uh beatles lyrics you know old ass bibles you know little tattered pieces of scripture you're like oh my gosh that's like kind you know people who touch that maybe were alive when jesus was alive i think actually no um close though you know um just great little artifacts you can go look at and then just the, the collection, you know, you see it, you're like, wow, this library is really amazing. And then they have all these like public spaces, really comfortable seating, and that you can drink alcohol while you're in there, which I really appreciated. Um, I never engaged while in the library. It felt wrong to me, but it was just nice knowing that there, that, that was an option, that I could have a beer while sitting in a library. Um, it was a great time. Um, I was kind of depressed when I was there. I, I think... Um, jet lag really fucks with my mental health. Like, I think it's really hard to get over it the older you are. And my Airbnb bed was really uncomfortable. And I figured out about four nights in that I could take the futon mattress from the living room of the Airbnb and put it on top of the bed. And then I could sleep. But there was about four days there where I was getting almost no sleep. I was like crawling out of my skin at night. And the last night I had just like I'm talking maybe a three hour anxiety attack, like crying. Uh, I was focused on one thing in my life. I was like panicked over one thing, um, a career thing, which I won't even get into. Cause like, well, let me just tell you, it was about, I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to do this like workshop thing that I'd been invited to do. It was very high profile, but it was more for like the theater world. And, I was debating on whether or not I should do it. And I had had a phone call with my reps, my agent, my manager earlier that day. And I got really emotional on the phone call about my stand-up, And I started crying, which I never like to do, but I do it more. I did it more often than I would like to admit. Um, crying on the phone with my representation is not something I'm proud of, but it is something that sometimes happens because you're talking about your art and your career and your money and whether or not it's going to continue. Um, and so I had a very emotional phone call and then I went and did my first show in London, my debut show. It went great. Like I can be crying. I could be crying, having a full blown breakdown five minutes before a show starts and then like zip it up, get on stage and be like, da -da 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 -da. I'm a comedian. Laugh at me. Nothing is wrong. I've got it under control. Like <laughs> normally I can do that. 
So I did that that night. The debut was great. I was really excited, you know, and I knew going in, British audiences can be can be a little more reserved. They don't laugh as much. I'd experienced this at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival the year before that. And I knew that, you know, the shows in London weren't going to be guaranteed great. I was going to have to mentally get over quiet audiences. And, you know, because back in the United States, if the audience isn't laughing, it means they fucking hate you. Okay, that's usually what that means. <laughs> but in the UK, that's not what that means. Um, there are pockets in America where there are more polite audiences, like Wisconsin. You know, um, they're afraid to laugh because they think it's rude. Um, and it's similar in London um, and the UK. Like, the people are like, they're really into it. So if they're not making noise, it doesn't mean they hate you necessarily. Some of them might hate you. Um, but some of them might love you, but they're just being quiet and they're like smiling and kind of giving you energy. And so you have to really be sensitive to the energy in the room. And this particular theater, I couldn't see their faces. It was really dark. So I could barely see faces even in the front row. So it was just, you know, kind of, there were times where you're doing an hour into a void of dead silence. That's really hard. That is really hard. So, but the first show went good, and so I was like, okay, we're off and rolling. London's going to be great. Now, that night is when I had the full-blown anxiety attack, and I went back, my brain went back and started obsessing over this workshop thing of whether or not I was going to do it, and it blew up into this whole thing about my stand-up. Why isn't my stand-up good enough? Why doesn't the, the industry recognize how hard I've worked? Am I funny? Am I not funny? Um, you know, what is the industry's perception of me? Why can't I prove myself? Why can't I get a late night spot? Why doesn't Comedy Central give me a half hour? I've done the work. What's wrong with me? Blah, and it just like blew up. I start writing an email, writing an email in the middle of the night, especially one that's about your career to your reps and it's emotional, is always a good idea. Uh, you really get your best thoughts in when you're jet lagged in a foreign country alone on a fucking horribly uncomfortable bed at 3 a.m. That's when you should be writing your agent and your manager and telling them what you think about yourself. That's a good idea. Um, no, it was awful. I'm sitting here writing this email. Now, luckily, I have a rule. Never send an email while you're crying. Never send an email in the middle of the night. Always, and if you can wait 24 full hours before pushing send, do that. Because you will, want, with a little bit of time, you will realize, okay, I need to ratchet down the emotions. You'll delete whole paragraphs. Because when you write that email in a full emotional state, first of all, it will be a damn novel. It'll be like 3,000 words of an email of you and lots of exclamation points and all caps and like never send that email. In fact, my advice would be to now, well, this would have of course been back in America one. Now we really don't email. So, um, I guess when you write letters, which by the way, we do have, I do have a, we, <laughs> oh, um, me and the chickens have a letter. I got a letter this week, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but my advice back then, you know, for myself and for anyone else, when you're writing an email, an emotional one, a confrontational one, an angry one, anything like that, um, first of all, don't put the person's email address in the to section. Leave that empty. 
That way, you can't accidentally send it to them before you're ready. Now, which is something I have done before. I learned the hard way. Uh, writing, you know, just some rage-filled email like, you fucking asshole, and then accidentally sending it, thinking I was going to go back and edit it and, like, tame it down a little, and then you've sent it, and it's like, oh, my God, I'm fucking insane. So always leave the two, um, the two area empty and always wait 24 hours before sending it because just with enough time, you will be able to gather your thoughts, edit it down, be clear with your intention and just express what you need to express to get your feelings across to the other person. Um, and so, but while you're writing the email, I mean, it's crazy town, especially when that setting, I, I mean, I was like having a physical, it was like a physical takeover. I couldn't, I knew I was having it. I knew I was breaking down. I couldn't stop it. And I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't keep the bad thoughts at bay. I was flooded and there was nothing I could do about it. And it felt like fucking hell. So I finally fall asleep at like 5 a.m. And I sleep for maybe four hours, which is not enough. And this is now cumulative, where it's been maybe five days now with not a full night's sleep. And for me, that is catastrophic to my brain function. So that night was the second night of shows in London. And I go to the theater and I'm like, my face is puffy. I'm trying to focus on studying my you know material and all that and I know this material I've been doing it for like some of the material I've been doing for over two years but the show itself I've been doing for over a year and I've done it over a hundred times like so there's no reason for me to not know this material but it is so easy as a stand-up to get distracted and for all of it to just go out the fucking window and you forget who you are so I get up on stage and the first thing I do when I go out, the first joke, the first point where there would be a laugh, it's dead silent. And I'm like, oh, fuck, it's going to be one of these shows where these British people don't think I'm, I don't know what they think, but they're giving me nothing. And my energy is so low right now. I can't, because you, when, you, when you face an audience like that, this is what I've learned. I've been, I am a lazy performer in that I will mirror the energy of the audience. If the audience is high energy, I'll be high energy. I'll be my best. If they're low energy, I'll be low energy and I get mad. And that's not how you need to be. You need to, yes, you need to work in the moment. You need to be present. You need to acknowledge the room that you're in. But it is your responsibility as an entertainer to create the energy in the room that you want. And sometimes you might never get these people up to your level, but at least you tried and you did your best. Well, this night, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even bring myself up to the level from, to meet them in their low level. Like, I was so out of it. I was forgetting lines. At one point, I was like, I know they're... Okay, so the part of this that makes it significant is that this is the night that the reviewers came. <laughs> so I am freaking out on stage. I'm like, I can't get, I can't dig, dig myself out. I'm, I'm burying myself and I can't get out of the hole and it's only getting worse. And at one point a man stomped out of the show. I have no idea why it was very distracting. I look, it was probably the biggest laugh I got because he leaves the show and I looked at him and I looked back at the audience and I was like, what do you think it was? (laughs) And everyone laughed you know, it's really sad when the biggest laugh you get is some is a point where you acknowledge it's not going well. 
And you never want to keep doing that. But of course, I kept doing that. I kept talking about how badly it was going. At one point, I was like, I know there's reviewers here. Just please ignore all of this stuff. And I said, I had like a horrible anxiety attack last night. I'm making excuses. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm jet lagged. And I'm so now, now I'm embarrassed that I've done that. I can't focus on the material. It was not a good show. I mean, I did the best I could. And it wasn't terrible. But it was just uneven. And my energy was really low. So the next day, that night, I finally got a good night's sleep. And the next day, I kind of woke up like, okay, we just went through hell, but it's going to be okay. And then, but then I start thinking, God damn it, what did these reviews say? And I start imagining the horrible reviews I'm going to get. Now, my rule is usually to not read reviews. I did Edinburgh, and I probably got reviewed over 20 times. And I didn't read one of them. I, I, well, that's not true. I didn't read any of them while I was there. I was aware of like how many stars I was getting because like in Edinburgh, you get reviewed by so many different publications. And if you get four or five stars, they'll put it up on your posters all over town. So when you're walking around, you know, like, oh, I got a four star review from whatever. I got a a five star review. Now, if it's under four, you don't get to put your stars on the poster. Don't do that. So you start getting a sense of how many four and five star reviews you're getting and how many. So I kind of had a sense. I, I, I allowed myself on the plane ride home to read one of the five-star reviews that I got, which made me feel good. And I also read one three-and-a-half-star review that I got from, like, a pretty respectable comedy blog called Chortle. And they're sort of like the tastemaker of comedy, I guess. Or, you know, I, get, I don't know what you would compare it to in the United States, but um, their opinion kind of mattered to me. So I was like, I'm going to read this three-and-a-half-star just to see. I'm gone. The festival's over. It can't affect me. And it was a really nice review, not one criticism. And I'm like, why didn't you just give me the extra half star, you dick? And I understand you have, like, a, you know, a reputation to uphold. You can't just be given out for your stars willy-nilly. But give me the extra half star. There wasn't one critique in the whole thing. So that actually was like, oh, so a three and a half star from this guy, because apparently he's very um, picky, actually made me feel good. So I read two of those reviews. And in London, I was like, okay, I'm not going to read, I'll do the same thing I did in Edinburgh. But in this case, I decided to go ahead and read them because I, I knew that I, what I was imagining they were saying about that weak ass performance was going to be like, what I was imagining was worse than what was really going to be written. So I allowed myself to read them and I was right. They were actually very nice and fair. Um, and I got three and a half stars from both publications. They were big ones. Um, and, you know, it, it bummed me out because literally the next night, you know, when you have a bad show like that, the next night you're like, I'm not going to fucking, you know, bow to this. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove you all wrong. And the next night I had an, a fucking phenomenal show. I, like, killed it. The audience was good. Um, and it was nice because, like, my publicist was there that night and and – when I say publicist, like I didn't have like a publicist all the time. That shit's so expensive. I had a publicist just for the London run. <laughs> okay. Let's be clear. All right. Um, so the publicist was there, the the producers were there and they, they were all like, Oh my God, that was amazing. So like, I at least showed them like, this is what I'm about. And you know, but it would have been nice to get the four stars, maybe even five. Um, because that would have made, meant I sold more tickets. I did really well, um, but I did not sell out my run in, in Soho Theater. And, you know, but whatever. 
two night two weeks. I thought I did pretty well. Um, but London was a struggle emotionally because of those things I just described. And when you're alone for that long, I had friends in London, I hung out a little, but you know, you spend a lot of time alone in a, in London at the time was, was rainy. And at one point it was snowing and I was just sort of feeling down in the dumps and starting to get homesick by the end. Well, I didn't get to go home right away. I went on a tour in Canada, a nine city tour in Ontario. And it was full-blown winter when I was there. Like, freezing temperatures, snow, driving, ice, rain. Like, it was just nasty. But the tour was really fun and because I was with three other comics. And they were all really nice um, people. And the, the tour, it was just for Laughs Roadshow. They treated us really well. Um, it was a lot of time in cars and trains and stuff. Like, because, you know, it was just a lot of travel. So by the end, I was like dead I was like hanging by a thread so homesick and the very last day of the tour I stepped out of a little bodega and I sprained my foot and it was so sad because I like fell down and I I knew immediately like I said earlier like you know immediately what you've done because now you're in the game now you're in the ankle sprain game and you're like and so instead of going ow I went fuck because I just knew (laughs) like I was like there goes two weeks of walking. There goes exercise. There goes traveling with ease. There goes all of it. Like, so I'm sitting there on the ground and I'm like holding my foot and three like very nice Canadians like descend upon me and they're just like, are you okay? And I'm like, I think I'm okay. Oh my God. I, I was like explaining, I was like, I'm prone to re-injury. I've already sprained my ankle once. Like they don't need this information. <laughs> and they're like, I'm like, could you just help me up? Um, so that I can kind of get a sense of like how bad it is. And so they helped me up and I'm like, oh, it's not that bad. I'm like, I'm totally fine. And I'm such an American in this case. Cause like Americans are like, I'm fine. Please do not call an ambulance. I don't want to fucking pay for that shit. Like that's, that's like how Americans think they're like, even if you have insurance, you're like, this is going to be too expensive. Please do not touch me. <laughs> um, do not call anyone. So, but I'm like, you know what, in comparison to that last time, you know, where I was like fainting and there was a, I mean, it was just truly so excruciating. I was like, I'm fine. They're like, are you sure? I was like, truly, I'm fine. I know what this is. Like, I'm right. I'm in the hotel across the street. I have a break. I have a, 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 like I had a compression sleeve, like already with me. I'm like, I'll just go. I've already, I already know it. I'm fine. So they kind of maybe thought that I was like someone who just had like, like maybe just rolled it and felt fine. And I knew what this, this was something that like I dealt with all the time. So they all walk away and I get maybe three feet and I'm like starting to sway. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to faint. Like here it comes. I'm truly going to faint. And so I sit down on the sidewalk and I'm thinking, well, you know what? Um, I'm on an empty stomach. So that might be why I'm like fainting right now. So let's get out the donut I just bought and eat it. So I'm sitting in the rain <laughs> on the sidewalk with my legs spread out, eating this donut, leaning up against like a marble column. (laughs) Like it, I wish there had been a security camera on me because that video is probably one of the, it was probably one of the funniest things I've ever done. And no one saw it. And it was, I mean, because I looked woozy. I mean, I probably look like a total drunk maniac. And then I eat the donut. I calm down. I'm like, okay, I feel better. And I get up and I like hobble back to my hotel room and I'm just like, fuck. But, you know, 
it was the last day of the tour. And I think it was my body being like, you have put yourself through too much and now we're going to punish you and you're going to be forced to just sit down for a minute. Um, it took a week or two to get better from that one, but it was, it was definitely fine. Um, but yeah, the Canada tour was interesting because towards the end of it, it occurred to me like for the first time on the whole tour that I was the only woman on the tour. Now that is notable because I used to be the type of person in my earlier days in comedy where if I was the only woman on something like that, that was something that you had to get into. I was chosen and invited to participate in this tour and I got paid um, money to do it. And it was something that as a younger comic, I would have been very proud to have gotten. And I was proud to have gotten it, but um, so it was sort of something that I was invited into a, an elite space. And I used to be the type of person who as you know, and I think a lot of female comedians would relate to this feeling is when you are the only woman in an, in an elite space, usually reserved for mostly men and you get to be the girl, you feel really good. Like you feel puffed up. You're like, I'm the one that got chosen. I'm the girl. I'm special. I'm different. And that may not be a feminist thing to say, but as when you come up, when you're in the comedy scene, especially back when I did, and it was such a male dominated business when you were the chosen girl and you got through the bottleneck, cause that's what it was like a bottleneck. Like all these female comics were competing for one or two spots. So when you got to be the girl, you were like, fuck yes. And you never considered yourself in competition with other men, which was very destructive. Um, but it was a really great moment to go, Oh, I I'm the girl. And I didn't even occur to me and it didn't, I didn't notice it the whole time. Now, I think that was one, my maturity coming through, but also I think that the male comics I was with and the men um, that worked on the tour were very cool people and they never made me feel like an other. They never made me feel different. They never brought it up and I'll name them Phil Hanley, Steve Simeone, Tone Bell and Graham Chittenden, Chitten, Chit. Shitting Graham? I don't know. Uh, shit. He's a Canadian comic. That's why I don't know his name as well. I'll figure it out. Um, he's very funny, though. But yeah, there was, um, they were all so cool and nice to me. And like, not that they wouldn't, why wouldn't they be? But I've been in other male-dominated comedy situations where I'm the only girl in a green room. And it is so clear that you're the only woman. That they are either acting weird around you because they're like, oh, we have to censor ourselves around you got to be careful you might accuse me of something you know I've been in that situation um but also that sometimes they'll be making like I was in a situation one time in a, in a green room where all the male comics were making fun of female comedians and you're like hey I'm here <laughs> I'm one of them um so it was a special moment and the tour was really given how tired I was and homesick I was. And then by the end injured, um, it was a great group of people. We were playing really big theaters all over Ontario. Um, and I thought I did okay. Some nights were better than others. I did the last show in a wheelchair, which was a new experience. And we thought it would be really funny if the, <laughs> if the stage manager pushed me out on stage like a curling competition to see if he could get me to land at the microphone. 
And we, I was like, well, if I come out on stage and they just immediately see me in a wheelchair, they're going to think, oh, she's somebody who is in a wheelchair. And um, they're going to think that's my comedy, you know, and like, or maybe I'm going to talk about it. And that would set me up to be an asshole, to be like, I'm in a wheelchair, but I'm not actually need, a, I don't actually need a wheelchair usually. Like, so what I did is I had the host say, your next comic, you know, credits, whatever. And she also sprained her ankle this morning, but she's being a trooper. She's still going to perform. Here she is. So they would know immediately that I had just injured myself that morning. So we had him push me out. <laughs> and I end up right at the spot like we practiced it like four times and we were all dying laughing and then I was going to make a joke about curling you know Canadian material and I get there and I make the the curling joke and like it is dead silent in the room like these people were not having it they were like so confused they were like is she making fun of disabled people is she disabled if i laugh am i making fun of disabled people there was an awkwardness in the room and it you know i just threw my material out and just sort of did whatever i wanted and talked to the audience and like at one point i was like i feel like i'm not connecting with you guys like and i was and also it was just a whole new experience to just be sitting down Doing stand-up, you're not used to it, so you now you're limited and you're thinking, oh, normally I'd walk over there during that part. Oh, I can't do that. So there was just a lot going through my head. And at one point, I was like, I feel like I'm not connecting with you guys. And someone yelled out, the Leafs are playing! Like some hockey team. I didn't even know it was hockey. I was like, okay, well, there if there's an important sports game tonight, why are you here? <laughs> you know, It's just like whenever people do that, I'm like then why are you here? You had a choice, you know? Anyway, that may not have gone over well either, but I did my best and it was an intimate, and at one point I was like, you guys are seeing me a special me, you know? Like, this isn't me normally. You're seeing me like in a unique circumstance. Like, (laughs) they they didn't appreciate that either. But they were nice people. Um, sometimes the Canadian audiences had that whole politeness thing going on. Um, I noticed, but other shows were amazing and people were like losing, it was like huge theaters, like 800 to a thousand people every night and the whole tour was sold out. So it was, it was a privilege to be on it, but the wheelchair thing didn't work out the way I thought it would. It gave me huge perspective of anybody, any comedian who, um, is, who has, who needs a wheelchair you know, permanently or whatever, and they have to perform in it. It really gave me perspective on that. And, you know, and that it comes with its own unique set of challenges that they have worked out and figured out. And, you know, because it's their life. And, you know, anyway, those types of things always make you get perspective on your own life and the advantages that you have. (laughs) Anyway, I don't really know if any of that was interesting, but... It's just what was on my mind, you know, just like really just popped up in my head, been thinking about it a lot. (sighs) Well, one really good thing to happen when you're injured uh, and alone is to get a letter from someone. And in this case, um, it's a letter from someone I haven't heard from um, in a really long time. In fact, I've never gotten a letter from him. And it's... um, my old friend, I guess he's my friend, um, Michael Ian Black. Um, and you might know Michael Ian Black from Back in America 1. He was one of the stars of the old comedy uh, sketch show on MTV, The State, which was seminal for me. I knew all the words to all those sketches. I was obsessed with it. And then I went on to move to New York City and actually got to meet with, meet and work with down the line as I worked my way up in comedy with, with members of The State. 
Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter, and just what a dream come true. And they all are such cool people. Um, and of course, Michael Ian Black did a lot of other things like another period. And I mean, just numerous, so many things. Um, and also Michael Ian Black was a huge champion of um, social issues on social media. Like um, he really s- took a stand. He put himself out on a limb in the gun re- reform debate. He joined up with TWAM T98, which obviously, you know, is the, the group of teens that kind of took over and staved off civil war. Um, he was he was instrumental in um, helping them and, you know, getting into fights with people on Twitter, calling the NRA a terrorist organization. Like he really put himself out there for a good cause. And I always respected him for that. But it has been quite some time since um we've communicated so i'm excited to see what he has to say this is interesting here we go dear sarah writing this to you from of course my hot tub what i didn't realize upon selecting the people who like to soak naked alone in a hot tub three bubble zone (laughs) is that even though the hot tubs are uniformly excellent The trade-off is that you don't see a lot of other folks because most of us spend a great deal of time soaking naked alone in hot tubs. When everybody else is soaking naked alone in their hot tubs, it kind of makes you feel like that's what you should be doing too. So it ends up being kind of a vicious cycle in which everybody is spending a lot more time than they anticipated soaking naked alone in their hot tubs. I mean, it's good, but it's a little bit lonely. So I thought I would write to you, somebody who has made a conscious decision to be alone, and see how you are coping. How's it going? Is your DBZ fun or are you kind of over it? Well, I'll go ahead and answer that, Michael. Um, it's going okay. Um, I, I started this podcast because I had hit sort of a wall of loneliness and needed to speak to someone, um, even if it kind of disappeared into the ether. Um, I needed to have like real conversations that weren't with like animals and things um, and plants. Um, so in some ways it's fun because I'm like living that dream of like, oh, I'm, I'm surviving and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm self-sufficient living off the land, you know, and, and that sort of, oh, I have a homestead, you know, that kind of fantasy plays out that can be fun, but sometimes I am kind of over it and I do miss, um, um, some of the old DBZs that I used to hang in. Anyway, back to the letter. I'm kind of over mine, but I'm reluctant to switch because, as I said, the hot tubs really are excellent. A couple nights per week, a few of us get together for dinner, clothed. But it's kind of hard because there's not that much to talk about aside from various hot tub problems and the occasional malady, sometimes hot tub related and sometimes not. I remember when you visited and you asked if you could try out the hot tub and I said yes, but it would be better if you did it alone since that was the whole point. You said you would do... You said you would, but you did not feel the need to get naked, and we we had kind of a fight about it because you were acting kind of like a rule breaker, and if you wanted to soak not naked in a hot tub, they had DBZs for that too. Eventually, you left without soaking naked alone in the hot tub, and we haven't spoken since. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read the rest of the letter before I respond to this. I want to see what he has to say. I am writing to apologize. I'm sorry I made such a big deal about the rules. At the time, I was new to my DBC and a little bit strident about the whole esprit de corps. Esprit de corps? Anyway, of the thing. If you wanted to soak alone, naked or not, you should have felt free to do so without my getting all up in your grill about it. So yeah, I'm sorry. 
I hope one day we can see each other again under different and better circumstances. Sorry if this paper is a little blotchy. The bubbles are creating a spritz, which is great for soaking, but not great for letter writing. Also, sorry if there are pubes. <laughs> Your friend, Michael. Well, wow. I mean, apology accepted, you know? Um, I remember that fight a little differently. Um, yes, I didn't want to take my clothes off. Um um, because I prefer to, I'm not a never nude. That's not it. It's just that when I get into a hot tub, I like the feeling of the clothes kind of like adhering to your skin, even maybe melting and melding in. Um, it's just a weird thing I have. Um, and I wanted to test out the hot tub like that. And Michael was kind of being anal about the rules. And, and I'm usually pretty anal about rules too, but I didn't see what the big deal was. And, um, but I don't remember him being, you know, all up in my grill. Um, I remember there being a lot more tears. Like he was crying. Um, and it was a little embarrassing for him, but you know, I guess he wrote that article about toxic masculinity in the New York times. And, uh, he was talking about how boys, we need to let boys show their emotions more. And I guess once we got to America too, Michael Liam Black was someone who cried a lot because he had really gotten in touch with his emotions. So I wasn't taken aback by that because a lot of men had gotten in touch with their emotions and men crying was sort of the norm at that point, just over anything, you know, over like, oh, there's not enough cereal left for me. And then they would cry over that and stuff like that. But um, he wasn't in my grill. He was just emotional and that's fine. Um... I ended up leaving. Um, I did realize after that that, yeah, maybe I'm not meant for a hot tub DBZ, even the the kind where you get to soak in your clothes. Because just after seeing it, I was like, gosh, these people, their, their fingertips are really shriveled up because they've spent way too much time in water. Um, but their skin seemed a little dry. Um, I don't know if they figured out how to moisturize properly after that. And you have to kind of, you do have to like hot tub in moderation. The rules do st clearly state that, but anyway, it's great to hear from Michael. Um, I'll have to write him back. Cause I'm glad we made up after all these years because it really, I mean, I'm not going to say I thought about it a lot, but once in a while I'd be like, Oh, what's he doing? How's that hot tub working out? Um, maybe he'll change DBZs. I don't know. Maybe he should, Go to the Soy Boy DBZ. <laughs> Soy Boy was a really mean name that people came up with to make fun of men who, on the left, liberal men who were um, weak or feminine in some way. And soy meaning like soy is a hormone. Like, I guess the, the connection is that soy is like a hormone that can affect women's... Soy is a... Is a ingredient that can affect women's hormones or something or estrogen or I don't know it has something to do with estrogen and like they came up with this brilliant insult called soy boy and um, ultimately it's a misogynistic term and it is meant to demean men by um, m making them female in some way which who cares but anyway that was just a joke and I don't think it went well um Wow. Well, I've got a lot to think about here. I've got a letter to write, I guess. Um, and that's what's happening at the cabinet. It's letter writing season, I guess. Well, 
I'm going to go put an ice pack on my foot and um, I guess I'll, I'll be back with another episode in a week. Love you so much.